about a generation ago that a man by the name of J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And I think how true that is. Our God is oftentimes too small. In the challenges of daily life, it's easy to press God to the periphery of our life. He kind of shrinks before the bigness of our problems, and we kind of forget the immensity of our God. The Israelites were kind of like that as well. As they were poised to enter into the promised land, uh, Moses selected a spy from each one of the 12 tribes, He sent them to spy out the land. The rumor said, Ben, that this was a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's see what it was all about. And so the spies went into the land. They came back with reports. Yes, in fact, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, it says that uh, the grapes were so large that they had to be dangled on a pole between the shoulders of two men. (laughs) But that was simply reflective of the size of the enemy that they were facing. There were giants in the land, one of the reports said. Ten of them filed a majority report that said, in comparison to the giants in the land, we feel like we're grasshoppers. Only two, Caleb and Joshua, filed a minority report. They said, the same God that brought us out of Egypt can bring us into the promised land. We believe God can do it. But because the majority said, no, our, our God is too small, They had to wait 40 years before that generation died off before they finally went into the promised land. You know, sometimes it's helpful just to kind of step back and look at the immensity, the size of our God. And that's what I want us to do this morning in the scripture text that we have before us out of Colossians. But sometimes it's helpful to grasp the size of God, not just through a verbal description, but through a visual. A visual is going to say a lot more. So in this opening video clip of the powers of 10, let's kind of get a sense of where we exist in the overall universe. The picnic near the lakeside in Chicago is the start of a lazy afternoon, early one October. We begin with a scene one meter wide, which we view from just one meter away. Now, every 10 seconds, we will look from 10 times farther away, and our field of view will be 10 times wider. This square is 10 meters wide, and in 10 seconds, the next square will be 10 times as wide. Our picture will center on the picnickers, even after they've been lost to sight. 100 meters wide. The distance a man can run in 10 seconds. Cars crowd the highway. Power boats lie at their docks. The colorful bleachers are soldiers' field. This square is a kilometer wide, 1,000 meters. The distance a racing car can travel in 10 seconds. We see the great city on the lake shore. 10 to the fourth meters, 10 kilometers. The distance a supersonic airplane can travel in 10 seconds. We see first the rounded end of Lake Michigan, then the whole great lake. 10 to the fifth meters. The distance an orbiting satellite covers in 10 seconds. Long parades of clouds, the day's weather in the Middle West. 10 to the 6th, a 1 with 6 zeros, a million meters. Soon the Earth will show as a solid sphere. We are able to see the whole Earth now, just over a minute along the journey. The Earth diminishes into the distance, but those background stars are so much farther away that they do not yet appear to move. A line extends at the true speed of light. In one second, it half-crosses the tilted orbit of the moon.
Now we mark a small part of the path in which the Earth moves about the Sun. Now the orbital paths of the neighbor planets, Venus and Mars, then Mercury. Entering our field of view is the glowing center of our solar system, the Sun, followed by the massive outer planets, swinging wide in their big orbits. Well, you get the feel, don't you? On and on it would go. Where are we in the midst of the size of the universe in which we live? This morning we're going to look at a text of Scripture that focuses on Christ as what I call the cosmic Christ, the big Christ. We've been moving in this direction in our series on the supremacy of Jesus Christ uh, for the last couple of weeks because we started in the book of Hebrews and we looked at Jesus as the sympathetic, vulnerable God who took on all of our challenges in life. And then last week, we turned to Philippians chapter 2, and we noted uh, the descent into greatness, that Jesus went on a trajectory downward for us, that he renounced his prerogatives as God, humbled himself even unto the cross, and then God exalted him and gave him a name that was above every name. And so this morning, we're going to continue on in that theme. What's that name above every name? What's that like uh, for God to be that immense? A generation ago, there was a uh, blasphemous commercial (laughs) that had the tagline, when you've said Budweiser, you've said it all. Remember that one? And I thought to myself, well, why should something mundane as beer have all the best lines? When you said Jesus, you've said it all. That's our theme for this morning. And as we look at Colossians, we're going to see that Jesus is the last word about God, he's the last word about creation, and he's the last word about redemption. So let's turn to our text of the morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and read these six verses together as our custom, and uh, read them alternately, starting at verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. First thing we want to note in this text is that Jesus is the last word about God. Let me ask you a question. What would we know about God if God had only taken the initiative to make him, had not taken the initiative to make himself known to us? What is we would have known if all we have is ourselves and our, the impenetrable God out there who lives in another dimension? What would we know about this God without special revelation? In history of theology, we've divided revelation 
into two categories. The first category we call general or natural revelation. The second category we call special or supernatural revelation. We see both of those things in the text this morning. So I'm asking the question, uh, what would we know about God if all we had was natural revelation? I think we would know probably a couple of general things about God. The first thing we would know is that God has revealed himself through creation. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made. Remember back to those classes where you talked about the arguments for the existence of God? And one of those arguments was the argument from design. That uh, looking at the creation, there must be a designer somewhere. Psalm 19, I think, captures this because it says that the creation sort of speaks its message to us. We read, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Look around you, Scripture says. Let that observation speak to you. There must be a designer somewhere. Fred Hoyle, the scientist after which the Big Bang, uh, who named the Big Bang as the origin of creation, said that uh, if the world came about by chance, how could it really possibly be that it came about by chance? In fact, he uh, kind of mocked his fellow scientists by saying that uh, the world coming about by chance was as likely as a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. There was a designer. We all intuitively know that there had to be a designer behind all of this. That's one of the things that we would know without specific or special revelation. The second thing we might know is that God is a moral being because all of us have an internal moral compass through which we measure things. I know it's very popular today to say, you know, there are moral, no moral absolutes. There's no standard by which we measure ourselves. There's no standard of right and wrong that is true for all people. But you know, those who say that very thing cannot live by it. <laughs> we all live as if there is a moral standard to which we appeal. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, begins his book with the argument for morality for the existence of God. And he says that we all sort of live off of this intuitive understanding, especially when it comes to issues of injustice, when we feel we have been wronged by somebody else. Then we appeal to a standard that says there has to be some morality out there. So Lewis writes, there are people who say things like this all the time. How'd you like it if someone did the same thing to you? Or people say, well, that's my seat. I, I was there first. As if there is a standard by which we measure our actions, there is a morality to which all of us appeal and know to be true. So there are probably at least two things we might know intuitively if there was not a direct revelation of God to us, that God is a designer and that he is the Holy One to whom we are accountable because our hearts speak that. But there's a huge gap from what we would know if that's all that we would have, right? We would say, well, who truly is this God? What qualities does he or she have? What's the name of this God? Is this God personal? 
We wouldn't know the answer to those things simply through natural revelation. We're totally beholding to God to reveal his identity to us. About 13, 14 years ago, there was a movie came out by the name of Contact. If I understand, it's actually being played today on the cable uh, TV networks. And uh, it's the story of a character who is obsessed with making connection with extraterrestrial life. When this character was a child, her father instilled in her the fascination that there must be life out there somewhere in the vast expanse of the universe. Jodie Foster played the role of the astrophysicist who was, had a consuming passion to receive signals of intelligent life from the great beyond. She would spend long, dreary hours listening to computers and high-intensity speakers that were hooked up to relay satellites. And then one day, the speakers began to pulsate with rhythmic sound that was out of this world. Contact had been made. And I would assert, yes, contact has been made. Not with extraterrestrial life, but with supernatural life. Special revelation has occurred. The world has already pulsated with a life that was out of this world. Paul puts it this way. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, for he was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. We are the visited planet. The invisible God has made himself visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul asserts here that Jesus is the image or the icon of God. Icon is the Greek word here. What does icon mean? We've heard this word applied to human beings, haven't we? That we are made in the image of God. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 7, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what's the difference between we being made in the image of God and Jesus in the image of God? Well, there's a big difference. <laughs> Jesus is the image of God. We were made in the image of God. I say, well, say, say more about that. I still don't quite, quite get that. Well, we talk about Jesus as the only begotten Son. We confess that in our singing of a, of a confession this morning, uh, that he is the only begotten Son. And there's a difference between being begotten and being made. Jesus is the begotten Son of God. We were made in the image of God. Here's how C.S. Lewis captures this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man and a woman together begets human babies. A beaver begets beavers. <laughs> but when you make, you make something different from yourself. People make cars, a beaver makes a dam. So when God begets his son, he begets one who's on the same level as and equal to himself. When he makes us, he makes something that is less than and less than and not on equal level to us. So Jesus is the image of God. We were made in the image of God, but have been flawed because of our sin. Icon or image can also, in some instances, refer to a copy or replica or master forgery, not the real thing. But this isn't the way that Paul uses it here. Jesus is not simply a representation of God. He is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the material or visible expression of the invisible God. In John's first letter, first chapter, the first verse, this is how he captures it. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that we proclaim concerning the word of life. Jesus himself had that sense that he was the visible expression of the invisible God. In a dialogue with one of his disciples by the name of Philip, Jesus says, Have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. The staggering claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus is divinity in human form. God has unveiled his divinity, and he came among us. Walk this planet. The man Jesus was none other than God among us. That's what sets us apart from every other faith. This is what Paul says in verse 19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is the last word about God. But secondly, we see in our text that Jesus is the last word about creation. We're going to see three assertions here about Jesus' relationship to creation. One is that he's preeminent over all of creation. Secondly, he's the means by which creation came into being. And thirdly, he's the force, the energy that holds all creation together. So the first one, Jesus is preeminent over creation. Paul says this in two different ways. He says, first of all, in verse 15, that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now that line has kind of hung people up. Firstborn? Does that mean that he was first to be born, that Jesus was a part of creation, that he came into being at a point of time? Was he the first to be born? No. This means that he was preeminent or sovereign over all creation. Firstborn has to do with position, not time. That it's said of the people of Israel that they were the firstborn children of God. Out of all the people on the face of the earth that God had selected the Israelites to be his children. It says of King David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now Saul was the first king, but David was the preeminent king. And that's the way this word is being used here to refer to Jesus. He is preeminent over all creation. And then Paul adds to it in verse 17. He is before all things. In other words, prior to creation coming into being, Jesus existed. There was a point in time in which the created order came into being. Over the last couple of generations, a new consensus has developed within the scientific community that has said that, yes, in fact, there was a point in time when creation came into being. It is commonly referred to today as what? The Big Bang. That is well recognized and accepted among the scientific community. For some, very begrudgingly, <laughs> that that truth has come to be. Even Albert Einstein, who you know, posited the theory of relativity and an expanding universe was not too happy about what he was, had discovered. In fact, he said, the circumstance of an expanding universe is irritating. Why did he say that? Because it put to bed the steady state theory of the universe that matter was universal, was eternal. We did not need to have a creator God to bring it into being. But now it's believed that the world began at a point in time, came into being at a point in time. 
So you have to ask the question, well, who or what started it? How did it come into being? The late Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist who was the director of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, considered himself an agnostic, and yet at the same time, he liked to kind of tweak his fellow scientists because of their anti-God state of mind, that they uh, did not come to the conclusion that uh, God was the source of all of the beginning. In an article entitled, In the Beginning, the Bang, a Big One, he concluded this article with a jab at his fellow scientists who can't admit that the Bible might be right. I'm hearing a buzz here. Okay, I hope it's not me. Robert Jastrow said, tweaking his fellow scientists, that uh, they can't admit that maybe the Bible might be right. And so he writes in this article at the conclusion, for the scientists who had lived by his faith in the power of reason, meaning the scientific method was all that there was, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Second thing we observe in the text is that Jesus is the means by which creation came to being. We read in verse 16, For by him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. In other words, Jesus is, is the sphere. He's the agent through which all the created order has come into being. So this raises the, the kind of the question of division of labor within the Godhead. What's the relationship between God the Father and God the Son when it comes to bringing creation into order? Well, let me give you a, a, a very crude illustration for this, and you will see how crude it is in a moment. It's kind of like the relationship that we on staff here have with Dan Myers, the senior pastor. Dan comes up with a lot of ideas. He's a creative visionary. But none of those things would happen without us. <laughs> a little slow on the uptake there, weren't you? You can tell Dan that. He's not here this morning. He's visiting another church, so, but I'm sure he will find out about it. <laughs> so God the Father is the creator in the sense that he has the image and the ideas. God the Son brings it all into being and to materialize. And then finally, Jesus is a sustainer that holds all the creation together. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Another way you could translate it is all things cohere. I call Jesus the cosmic glue, the energy behind which all of it holds together. I said in the introduction that uh, we are very small in relationship to all of, of creation. When you start to describe the size of this universe in which we live and the images that we just saw earlier that could have gone on and on and on, we are just a little speck of dust in the cosmos in which we live. Maybe one of the ways to dramatize that is that in our galaxy, the Milky Way, there's a star by the name of Antares. That star is so large that if you placed it where the sun is, the earth would be inside of that star. 
The sun is 93 million miles away. Light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. It takes 8.3 minutes for the light to travel from the sun to, the, to our planet here. We are part of the Milky Way galaxy that many say has about 400 billion stars in it. And it takes light years to travel across the breadth of this galaxy. How much is a light year? Well, let's take a look. A light year is 5,878,625,373,200 miles. You multiply that by about 100,000, you get the distance across one galaxy. I got a headache already just thinking about that. You can't take it in, can you? Can't even fathom it. We don't even live as if that's true day in and day out. We just go about our business as puny little beings on this planet before a God who has called all of this into being. That's outer space. What about inner space? Well, let's take a look at inner space. We are back at our starting point. We slow up at one meter, 10 to the zero power. Now we reduce the distance to our final destination by 90% every 10 seconds, each step much smaller than the one before. At 10 to the minus two, one one hundredth of a meter, one centimeter, we approach the surface of the hand. In a few seconds, we'll be entering the skin, crossing layer after layer from the outermost dead cells into a tiny blood vessel within. Skin layers vanish in turn, an outer layer of cells, felty collagen. The capillary containing red blood cells and a roughly lymphocyte. We enter the white cell. Among its vital organelles, the porous wall of the cell nucleus appears. The nucleus within holds the heredity of the man in the coiled coils of DNA. As we close in, we come to the double helix itself, a molecule like a long twisted ladder whose rungs of paired bases spell out twice in an alphabet of four letters, the words of the powerful genetic message. At the atomic scale, the interplay of form and motion becomes more visible. We focus on one commonplace group of three hydrogen atoms bonded by electrical forces to a carbon atom. Four electrons make up the outer shell of the carbon itself. They appear in quantum motion as a swarm of shimmering points. At 10 to the minus 10 meters, one angstrom, we find ourselves right among those outer electrons. Now we come upon the two inner electrons held in a tighter swarm. As we draw toward the atom's attracting center, we enter upon a vast inner space. At last, the carbon nucleus. So massive and so small. This carbon nucleus is made up of six protons and six neutrons. We are in the domain of universal modules. There are protons and neutrons in every nucleus, electrons in every atom. Atoms bonded into every molecule out to the farthest galaxy. As a single proton fills our scene, we reach the edge of present understanding. Are these some quarks in intense interaction? We reach the edge of our present understanding. 
What's that energy that holds it all together? In Christ, all things cohere. He's the last word about creation. And finally, he's the last word about redemption. I'm going to skip to verse 20. We see these words about redemption here. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the last word about reconciliation and redemption. It says here that uh, we've got a problem. The problem is enmity. There is hostility between ourselves and God, and Jesus is our peace. He's the peace offering to bring us in relationship to our God. When we look at this whole issue of reconciliation, it may be helpful to look at it from the angle of another culture, to take a familiar kind of truth and look at it from another kind of setting helps us grasp it. There's a missionary by the name of Don Richardson. Don served for memory of years as among the Sawi people in New Guinea. The Sawi people are a cannibalistic people. He and his family lived among them for many a year, looking for a way to present the gospel in a way that they can understand. Because Richardson had this belief that within every culture, there is a redemptive symbol, a sense of eternal truth through which you can make a connection with the gospel. And he was looking for that. Now, the Sawi people were, as I said, cannibalistic. But they also had the highest value in their culture to be treachery. What does that mean? That meant that you got people to trust you, and then they became your next meal. And so the whole idea was just kind of this art form of treachery. Suck someone in to believe in you, and then do them in. Now, the Sawi people and the Hamans were neighboring tribes, and they were at odds with each other. They were going back and forth over the years. And finally, even they became exhausted with this kind of warfare, and they decided to make peace with one another. Their word for peace was to sprinkle cool water on one another. But how does a culture that holds up treachery as the highest value ever make peace with somebody? How do you ever get them to believe you, especially if both of these cultures hold the same value? Well, when Richardson was reading the gospel story to them and telling them the story, who was the hero in the story to them? When it got to the point where Judas betrayed Jesus, they cheered. <laughs> that was the one they thought was the hero in the story. That's the one that they, they believed in. Well, they decided to make peace with one another. And so the Sawi elders and the Haman elders lined up facing each other one day, and Richardson observed this whole thing. And he saw finally Cayo of the Sawis with his wife convulsing in tears, offering up his six-month-old only son to the Haman people. And the Hamans took a six-month-old child, boy child as well, and exchanged them with the Sawis. They called this child the peace child, the Teraptim. This peace child was one that was offered to the other tribe because as long as that peace child was alive, you could not commit treachery against each other. And the conclusion of that ceremony was that all the members of the tribe came and put their hand on the peace child and pledged that they would not commit treachery against one another. There was a higher value. The higher value than treachery was that this peace child was the offering. 
And so, of course, Richardson found his way to then be able to share that just as Cayo had given up his only son, God had given up his only son on our behalf. And he became the terrup Tim for us, the peace child on our behalf, and through the cross took our guilt away so that we could receive and exchange forgiveness of sin before our God. As a postscript, when the Sawis found out that Judas had betrayed the terrup Tim of God, the peace child, he was no longer their hero. <laughs> because the worst thing one could do was to commit treachery against the peace child. This then became an even higher value for them than the value of treachery. And Paul says here that Christ as the peace child is not only a peace child for us individually, but peace child for all of creation. All things will be united in him one day. May it be so. For our purposes this morning, we want to reframe our lives around the preeminence of Jesus Christ as the last word about God, the last word about creation, and the last word about redemption. Our God is is too small. If we allow him to be as big as Paul portrays him, then the matters that we're dealing with in daily life become much smaller, don't they? Or as it's been said, don't sweat the small stuff because most of it is small stuff. I want to think uh, this morning as we conclude about a wonderful passage that Brennan Manning gives to, is a wonderful picture here of Christ ruling over all things. So let me conclude with this quote. If I ask myself, what am I doing walking around this planet? Why do I exist? As a disciple of Jesus, I must answer for the sake of Jesus Christ. If the angels ask, it's the same answer. We exist for the sake of Jesus Christ. If the entire universe were suddenly to become articulate from north to south and east and west, it would cry out in a chorus, we exist for the sake of Christ. The name of Jesus would issue from the seas and mountains and valleys. It would be tapped out by the pattering rain. It would be written in the skies by the lightning. The storms would roar the name Jesus Christ, and the mountains would echo back. The sun on its westward march through the heavens would chant a thunderous hymn. The whole universe is full of Christ. That's what we confess. He's that big. Let's pray together. Lord, we bring to you our lives today in light of what we have seen about you as Lord over creation, you as Lord over our redemption, you as Lord of all. May we bring those things that weigh us down, place them before you and see that you are big enough to handle all things in our life. Through Christ we pray. Amen.